So uh, my name's Kristen Hauser, and I'm the Chief Public Affairs Officer at the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape and the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. We are actually located here in Harrisburg. I don't know that people realize that like the nation's clearinghouse on all things related to sexual assault is two miles down the street. So um, we have some information up front about the services that are available in Pennsylvania, the resources that our National Center makes available. Um, we've got some items left over from our Sexual Assault Awareness Month campaign. So please take a, take a look at all of that. Um, th this evening is sort of interesting because we're, we're doing a bit of a, a role switch. Um, I have been working with Nikki doing, uh, giving her interviews for her reporting on the Cosby case for four years, maybe. So tonight I'm interviewing her. So <laughs> it's a little bit of payback, maybe. Because back in 2005, the head of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape was like my go-to person for comments trying to explain a lot of the stuff that was going on back then. So I went back, when it broke again, I went back. <laughs> and I'm so glad that we could do that for you. So let me tell you a little bit about Nikki Wisensee Egan. Uh, she is an award-winning journalist and the former People Magazine senior writer and was the first reporter in the country to really dig deeply into the Bill Cosby okay. case in 2005 when a lot of other reporters shied away. So she was assigned to the story while working at the Philadelphia Daily News and was able to quickly become sourced and make connections with other victims who were reporting and began breaking exclusive stories about the case. So we're gonna talk a little bit about what happened back then, but the, the story sort of went dormant for about a decade. And then again in October 2014, uh, when a, a comedian, Hannibal, and I, I just blanked Hannibal Burris. Thank you, Hannibal Burris, um, made mention of Bill Cosby in his uh, routine and said if you Googled Bill Cosby and the word rape, that you would find more hits and more information than you would if you Googled Hannibal's own name. Um, it, it sort of started a, a little bit of a buzz and then on December 30th, 2015, the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office announced uh, that they were bringing charges against Bill Cosby for the sexual assault of Andrea Constant from back in 2005. So we are looking at uh, a, a more than a decade of, of reporting tonight that is included in uh, Nikki's book, which came out last week, Chasing Cosby, and that is available here for purchase. So Nikki has a 28-year record of digging into stories to expose wrongdoing, and she is not done. She has more projects under her belt. Um, but on behalf of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape and the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, uh, we've worked with her throughout her coverage on this story and are so glad to have you here with us tonight. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I just wanted to start with asking you to give us some uh, parameters about the story just for the audience's benefit. So by your count, how many different women have made public allegations that Bill Cosby has drugged and sexually assaulted them? 64. Yeah. And that is span 64 women. I feel like I'm not sure if my mic is on well enough, but great. We're good. Thanks. So 64 women spanning the era of 1965 to 2008? Yes. Yes. Okay. So that's no, and I just want to say known victims because they stopped coming forward after he started suing them for defamation. Yep. So that's a 43-year time period of known victims. How many of those 64 have you interviewed? Oh, I don't. I, <laughs> I can't even count. I mean, I, I've not been able to interview all of them. And in fact, when when this rebroke again in 2014, there were a team of us working on them. Um, what I did do for the book was the ones whose stories I told in more detail, um, I, I broke out their stories. So, you know, I interviewed maybe 70 people for the book, and I had two months to write it. Mm -hmm. But um, there were 13 other women in, uh, accusing Cosby in 2005. Twelve of them were so-called Jane Doe's identities we didn't know. So I tried to include all of their stories because they were the ones who were really brave. It was brave to come forward in 2014, but in 2005 coming forward, you were attacked by the media. I was attacked by the media. Um, every Cosby controlled the media. So it was really much scarier to come forward in 2005 even than it was in 2014. Yeah. Do you know, to the best of your knowledge, about how many of them had made reports to the police? Some of them had made attempts. Um, Barbara Bowman talks about going to see an attorney and basically was kind of laughed out of his office. Um, mm -hmm. 
so some of them did try, but some of them didn't even know what happened to them. Yeah. This was a man that they trusted. This was a man who sought them out to mentor them. He did not, she, they did not seek him out. He contacted their agents and said, I want to be your mentor, I want to mentor her. And then he got, he groomed her, them, he groomed their families, he gained their trust. And then he got them in an environment he controlled and he drugged and sexually assaulted them. And then he, um, some of them, the last thing they remember is taking two sips of a drink and then they woke up like two days later. So some of them didn't even know what happened to them because these drugs, they wipe out your memory. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a hard thing to go to police with a story like that, but these predators know that. And they choose women, they choose victims that, where there's a differential of power. So if you're Bill Cosby and you're doing this to this 15-year-old model, who are you going to believe, police? Are you going to believe the 15-year-old model or are you going to believe Bill Cosby, America's dad? So it was not that many did, which, as we know, is, is the norm for sexual yeah. assault victims. Very few go to police. Yeah. I know people always ask that, so I wanted to get that out of the way up front. So I have a bunch of questions, but because you just sort of uh, skirted mm -hmm. on the top of one, I'll, I'll just go there right now. So um, I, d I don't know that if, if people are quite as aware of the dynamics that went on about how he approached so many of these women. And uh, as I read through your book, one of the themes that kept jumping at me and seeming uh, more and more absurd every time I read it was that he was offering mentoring and career advice for modeling and Bill Cosby never was and is not a model <laughs> so um, I felt like as I was reading your book his his ploy almost became more and more baseless the more it was repeated. And I'm just curious if anybody that um, you talked to, whether it was uh, like about his relationship with the woman who was running the modeling agency where mm -hmm. he met so many of these people, but it's an unusual, he, he's, he's not into modeling, he's not a photographer, he's, he doesn't work in that industry. So his ability to utilize the desire of young women who wanted to be models to open a door to form this relationship is an ill fit, but nobody questioned it. So I'm just curious if, if uh, people have talked about that to you over the years. Well, but I, I would think, you know, a lot of aspiring models want to be actresses. You know, Janice Dickinson was kind of funny at the trial because she's like, I was a terrible actress, but she wanted to try. So I think that was just a way to approach them. And he would say, I know people at the Ford Modeling Agency. These were like local agencies and I can get, we'll get your headshot and I can get it to them. So he did have contacts in the industry to help these people, but he, would all, he was also telling them he could get them roles as extras on the Cosby show. And that became his thing. There was one agency that was sending him five or six teen models a week while he, when he was filming the Cosby show in New York City. And they would come on Thursday nights and there would be a dinner and the, um, they would tape a dinner and then another taping and then some of those later became some of these Jane Doe's. Yeah. And yeah. let me tell you, afterward he tried to destroy them. It's not like, you know, he, the casting couch, whatever, some people say that. It's like it was, it was the exact opposite of that. He sought them out and then after he did this, he, he destroyed, he, whatever career aspirations they had, they were gone because he made sure of that. Yeah. So what about, there's so many things I have to say, trying to figure out what to talk about tonight was almost impossible because this could be a four hour conversation easily. There's so many aspects to this case. But what about this case, first of all, made you want to write this book? Um, there's so much misinformation out there. And I have to think that, you know, a lot of us, I, I grew up watching Fat Albert and the Kids on Saturdays with my brother. I grew up watching The Cosby Show when I was a teenager. I loved the show. It got me through some really hard times in my own family. And when this broke in Philly, I was just, I was like, not the cause. I mean, I literally did not want to believe it. Um, but I had to push my personal feelings aside and say, okay, what, what's going on here? And they weren't releasing the woman's name. All I knew is she worked at Temple. I had sources there. And I, I quickly found out, you know, she was credible. I mean, she was director of operations at the women's basketball team. Um, he was in a position to know her, because that's the big question, like who is this woman and is she even in a position to know him and what was she doing at his house? And I found out I mean, they had nothing but glowing things to say about Andrea there. So that was a big sign to me. They loved her, she did a great job. And um, it just quickly became clear that there was a lot to this story. Mm -hmm. So, so when, did, when did things click into place, like going from a perspective of a, a journalist who's first approaching 
uh, an allegation, a story, and you have a sort of a neutral standpoint to digging in um, because you ended up emerging as a journalist who was really um, almost being a spokesperson for the facts of the case and saying this stuff is credible, which was a little bit unique compared to the other journalists at the time in 2005. So what, what clicked into place for you that um, cemented your, your belief that there, there was some credence to the allegations? Well, it was more that um, I, did a, I found out that there was a tape that Andrea had that supported her allegations. It was a taped phone call between Cosby and her mother. So there started growing, there started being more evidence to show that she was telling the truth. And what happened was then the Cosby people, when I did a story about that, they leaked to Celebrity Justice, this site that was run by Harvey, Harvey Levin at the time, who now owns TMZ. Um, that this phone call happened before Andrea went to police and that she, it was a classic shakedown, that she was trying to shake them down for money. Well, all of that, as I found out, was a, a lie. But they, so they started releasing lies about her to the media, her and her mother. And, I, and it was just was really upsetting to me because I'm like, if you're going to attack someone, at least tell the truth. <laughs> you know, if you're going to question someone's integrity, at least don't lie. But the media was just running with it and they were acting like it was truth. And they started, they ran her name. Um, you don't run sexual assault victims' names without their consent. Right. But very quickly, her name and her photo were everywhere. And it was just like all the journalistic rules were being broken in this case, and they were being broken in favor of Bill Cosby. And it is the, I have to tell you, like, it is the scariest thing in the world to come out against a man like him and say a powerful man like that did something like that to you. Um, it takes a lot of courage. Um, I only got a taste of it because they came at me with everything they had too and were trying to intimidate my newspaper into not running stories. I was getting daily phone calls. When Tamar, a California attorney, came forward and said this happened to me too 30 years ago and um, she told her story to authorities and to Andrew's attorneys and then told her story first and exclusively to me, then they went after her with everything they had. And the media did too. I was going on all these night talk shows and if you ever want to watch the videos, they're on my website. And it was, it was Dan Abrams from MSNBC saying, well, do you think she's credible? Talking about Tamara Green. I'm like, well, I wouldn't have written a story about her if I didn't think she was credible. And it was just like everybody in the media too was doing everything they could to like attack these women who, who hadn't, they, the other women that came forward, they had no lawsuits of their own. They, they were just coming forward to support Andrea because they could tell she was not being believed by the DA. So it was more that I was just, I would, I, there, and I would, that's when I would go to Delilah Rumberg, who was head of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, and ask for her comments like, do you think it's important that, you know, this attorney that was tomorrow's thing had a bar complaint against her? No, it has nothing to do with the crime against her. I mean, with what she's saying happened to her 30 years ago. Like, they, rape shield laws prevent these tactics from yeah. being used in court, so now what lawyers do is they go to the media, and the media runs with it. So it was a lot of sorting through my own feelings um, yeah. about that. Yeah. So, um, Gosh, we're, we're like, we're, we're skirting on the top of so many of the things I, I wanted to ask about in a, a real focused kind of way. What changed in terms of how the story was covered from 2005 until now, and how do you think that impacted the, the public's perception and, and belief of this case, or, or still disbelief is, is really obvious on Twitter? and other social media right now? Well, in 2005, there was no social media. Facebook mm -hmm. was still for college students. There was no Twitter. There was no Instagram. Um, websites for newspapers and news agencies were in their infancy, so a story really couldn't go viral. And Bill Cosby was able to control the media. And he was able to do it through a combination of, of threats, or as I learned, this term trading up, where you get a news organization to back off one story, and right. you give them a better one in exchange for it. because. The bookers for the shows I was on was telling me they were getting a lot of pressure from his people for me to not be on the show. And that's where I heard the phrase trading up. And pretty soon I wasn't on their shows anymore. So, um, so he was able to control the media. He, the, the amount of power that man had, I can't even explain. I had never experienced anything like it in my life. So um, in 2014, however, there was social media. And that video of Hannibal Burris that was on Philly Mag's website from the Philly Mag reporter went viral on Twitter, like BuzzFeed picked it up two days later, and then Gawker, and then the Daily Mail did, and then Barbara Bowman emerged again. She had spoken to us at People. I went to People from the Daily News in 2006, and she'd spoken to Philly Mag, um, but she came forward again. She's like, why wouldn't anyone listen to me all these years ago? And then the first new accuser came forward. Cosby started canceling public appearances. So and in the meantime, all these um, 
online news organizations had sprung up too. And they weren't afraid to take him on and they were writing all of these women's stories. And it ended up forcing the mainstream media to start covering it. And do you think that the, the change in Cosby's public status had anything to do with that? Like, can you talk a little bit about who he was back when the story first broke versus who he is now in, in terms of his um, uh, relatability and celebrity? Because it, it, it's different now than it was back when the story first broke. Right, I mean, he was still, you know, Cliff Huxtable, but he wasn't in a show when it happened, in, you know, when it happened in 2005. In 2014, when it, when it rebroke, his a new biography had just, of him had just come out that was climbing the bestseller list. He had a deal with NBC to develop, um, to develop a family show, a family comedy sitcom, and he also had a new comedy special coming out on Comedy Central. No, he had a new comedy tour starting, and a Netflix comedy special, that's what was coming up. So he was a little more relevant then, but really it was like Twitter, according to some analysis, is it skews younger as far as the people that are using it? And they don't care. They, you know, they, they had no idea who he really was. They, and they, they were more open to sexual assault survivors' stories and believing them. And so you know, they, that's what went viral. And he tried to counteract that with his own meme contest. And it just backfired because, do you remember that? And so they just started yeah. all the meme. They, gave, they had this meme creator on his website where you could take all these pictures of Bill Cosby and put a funny headline. Well, everybody started putting things like, Bill Cosby, you know, drugs and sexually assaults women. Like, it completely backfired to the point where they had to take it down. Um, and there, a lot of stuff about rape was put on them. So, um, so yeah, social, I think once the public can get the information, they can draw their own conclusions. And that's also why I wanted to write the book, because I feel like there's bits and pieces of this story everywhere. No one's put it all in one place. Mm -hmm. Read it, decide whether you believe it or not, but you know, here's, here's what happened. Right. And I've had a lot of comments on, um, from even Cosby supporters on Amazon and some of the people who've read it saying, you know, I didn't want to believe this, and then I read your book, and you know, so I just, I just hope, there's a lot of misinformation out there still being spread by his side, and I just hope people at least read it and see what they think themselves. Right. So as a quick recap, Andrea Constan came forward and it became public in 2005 about an assault that she believed happened in early 2004. Mm -hmm. And there was an investigation and came investigation. to right? <laughs> came to an abrupt halt, which we'll touch on here in a minute. Um, and then she moved forward with this, her civil suit. There was a deposition. It was sealed. There was a settlement. And then we didn't hear anything about it until December 30th, 2015. Well, a little bit early in 2015 when um, the, uh, the, the judge decided that part of that could be unsealed. Can you help put those pieces together for the audience about what that, that motion was, like why it was filed and why that deposition became unsealed, which really unlocked the ability for this case to move forward again? Sure. Um, after all of these women started coming forward in late 2014, and it was just you know, it was woman after woman after woman, and they were telling their stories, either going straight to the media or, you know, Gloria Allred was holding her press conferences. So um, the, AP, the Associated Press uh, decided to file a motion to see if they could get, not the deposition unsealed, but there were a lot of court documents and motions that had excerpts of the depositions in them, but Cosby was having everything sealed back then. And so they filed a motion to get it unsealed. And it took several months, but that July, the judge, unsealed those documents with uh, portions of the deposition and he said basically he did it because Cosby had given up his right to privacy because he'd been, been a public moralist. He'd been lecturing people about how to behave, you know, with his blame, with his, um, blame the poor tour as someone called it and everything. Mm -hmm. So basically he had lost part of his right to privacy because he was lecturing people on moral issues. Yeah. And then what happened was I, the judge apparently had forgotten to seal the entire deposition, so the New York Times got it from the court reporter. And that's when the whole thing really blew up, when you could really see the entire deposition. Right. So at that point in time, um, in Pennsylvania, the statute of limitations for adults in a sexual assault case is 12 years. And the clock was ticking. And we, we think, because of the approximate date, they were using approximate dates, but they, they brought charges with less than two months to go. Right, and it was really interesting because in 2005, all 
when Castor would talk about it, who was the district attorney at the time overseeing the case, he kept a call in an inappropriate touching. Um, even though Andrea had told police, not to get too graphic, from the beginning that it was digital penetration, which is aggravated indecent assault, which is a felony, which is the 12 years. Yes. Um, but he kept calling inappropriate touching like it was a misdemeanor. So um, anyway, so yeah, so it, they, Risa Furman, who was the DA in July 2015 of the county, reopened the case once there was this admission from Cosby in this deposition that he had given quaaludes to a woman he wanted to have sex with. And he had said women and then changed it to woman after his attorney made an issue out of it. And that just blew it up because that was exactly what Andrea was saying, that he gave her drugs. He told her it was herbal medication because Andrea is very holistic. She doesn't, and they had talked a lot about holistic stuff because he was her mentor for 15 months before this happened. And again, he sought her out. She was at a basketball game where she worked and Cosby was a big supporter of the team. Him and the coach were very good friends. He did, he's an alum, he's on the board of trustees. He had done commercials for Comcast for Temple. So a donor introduced Andrea to him to Andrea at that game and then he called her up and began you know, mentoring her. And he was on the board of trustees. It really wasn't something that she could say no to. So as we talk about the deposition, I know um, over the years when I'm talking to people about this case, including reporters, um, people will say, well, this is a he said, she said case. And it, it really is not um, a he said, she said case. I mean, first of all, if you, if you do the, the, the broad view, uh, the, the New York Daily News. News had a, a, a headline on December 31st, I believe, of 2015 that said, it's a he said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said, and they, they pulled it out to like 50 at yeah. that point in time. So that, that's the broad view. But even in the case with Andrea Constant, it's, it was not a he said, she said. Their stories as documented in that deposition were nearly identical with the really, the, the only true disputable point was what was in those pills, what the pills were. And it was his side that he'd given three different accounts of what those pills were to three different people um, over the time. So it's a rather unusual situation where you have testimony from the defendant that um, nearly incriminates uh, th themselves, and, and that was read into the record during both trials. So um, I will add, though, that he said in the deposition he played it out as, as if it was this big consensual thing yes. that happened with him and Andrea. And even though she viewed him as a mentor and she as a grandfather figure, because he was 10 years older than her own father, Yes, he says in his deposition that he had his eye on her for a romantic relationship from the moment he met her at that basketball game. And I interview an FBI profiler in the book who talks about icon intimidation and how these predators go after their prey and how they choose them. And it was chilling reading those statements again because it was step by step exactly yeah. what she described and grooming them and, oh, let me help you. you. You wanted to be a sports broadcaster in college. Let me help you, I can introduce you to people. Oh, you need a headshot, I can send you to a great place. And he weirdly, he bought her, he loved to have women with curly hair straighten their hair for some reason. He bought her like this really expensive hair dryer so she could straighten her hair. I mean, she's an athlete, she was like one of, the top five basketball players in all of Canada in high school. She was recruited by 50 to 60 American colleges to play for them and chose the University of Arizona. She was a jock her whole life. All she ever wanted to do was play in the WNBA. And then she played in Italy after college and then she ended up at Temple. So she's not a girly girl. Like she's not someone who does that. And um, you know, it's, it, it just didn't, but he wanted to make her into that. And yeah. he really wanted to, like she, one of her friends told me she didn't even know how to use makeup. He invited her to New York for some event and he wanted her to wear makeup. And so these, these guys that lived across the hall from her, one of them helped her put on makeup and like took her to the store and bought it because she just didn't wear makeup. Um, but yeah. she did that because he said, you need to do this to meet these people. And she was still kind of trying to figure out what she wanted to do next. Um, so one of the things that, that jumped um, from the deposition, we had the, the differing labeling of what the medication was. But the, the other thing that was interesting, and I, I sort of want to build to the question, um, when we heard his own words from the deposition, I, I remember the, the entire journalist pool was really um, 
kind of shocked and creeped out mm -hmm. by Cosby's own words and language about the sexual interaction. Yeah. And it, it's, um, it's striking to me because while on one hand the defense is trying to build this as a consensual, romantic relationship, Cosby himself in describing what happened was using disembodied, depersonalized, almost scientific, mechanical sounding descriptions of, of what he did with her. And, and yet, we ended up with a hung jury on, on trial number one. Um, with all of that, it's like it, it was the least romantic thing that you could have heard. Like everybody in the courtroom felt gross walking out of the courtroom yeah. that day. It, it was like soft porn or something. In fact, in the second trial, I, was, I could see the six alternates from where I was sitting. And um, there were two African-American guys that were closest to me. And they're reading it on the screen. And they're, they're, the detectives on the stand reading Cosby's words. And I saw their faces going, like they were just completely grossed out yeah. by it. And, um, I mean, you can, if you go online to the Montgomery County website, you can find, if you ever want to read the depositions or anything from it yourself, it's all there. So, yeah, it, it was really bizarre. And, and he loved to tell stories, though. He even says in there, I'm the greatest storyteller in the world, and you're not listening to me. Yeah. So it was like he spun out these really long, involved tales about these women he did this to. And one of them was, which I really hadn't read a lot of till I was do, writing the book, was the woman from 2000. There was another actress, a young 19-year-old actress, um, he was mentoring, who was an extra in the Cosby show. He invited her to his house, and then something happened. She went to police, and then they had a conversation afterward, and, sh and she said to him, you know, what did you give me? And nobody's ever reported that, so I was reading that going, oh, my God. And then next thing you know, she disappears, and, you know, more than likely he, you know, gave her an educational trust, which is what he'd right. offered to Andrea and her mom, and they didn't take it, him up on it after she went to police. Right. So yeah, it was really, it was bizarre. Um, and here, you know, I have to put it in the context of this is a clean cut guy who lectures comics about using the N-word, who lectures black guys about, you know, baggy pants and names and, you know, yeah. he's just this, he had this Teflon as Heritable Burry's son in that routine image, um, squeaky clean. And then he's admitting to affairs in this deposition. He's admitting to giving women drugs that he wanted to have sex with. And he's saying this mildly pornographic stuff about all of them. Yeah. Yeah. It was not relational. It was not intimate in any way. It was not romantic. It was, it was, it was like a third person accounting of describing actions that you would see. It was, it and was I very think strange. The, the, Times the New York Times story was a great description because I think it said it was like a playboy. Like he came off like this playboy or something yeah. like that. And it was so opposite of his clean cut, all American dad image. And that's when he, a lot of like, he had Jill Scott, the singer supporting him. Like she yes. backed off her support of him. And, and that's when the DA's office reopened the case. Yeah. So the allegations about Bill Cosby are similar to those about R. Kelly and Michael Jackson and Woody Allen and other icons, which have sort of brought into the public arena a debate about whether or not it's possible to separate the art from the artist. Um, and I'm curious to know what you think about that question. Oh, I had a hard time separating the art from the artist. I thought Bill Cosby was Cliff Huxtable. Um, but, you know, as it became clear to me throughout the reporting of this story, he's not. And... You know, I could still watch the show, though. When I was writing my book proposal a year and a half ago, I was channel surfing. I came across The Cosby Show on TV One. It's still on there. And I started watching it, and I was mesmerized like I always was. But then um, during the course of, you know, working on the book, I, I saw a documentary they did on Gloria Allred and, on Netflix about a year ago. And Lily Bernard, one of Cosby's accusers, was on there. And she um, was also an extra in The Cosby Show. And I knew that but I didn't know what role she played. I just felt, I thought she was like one of those silent extras you see in the background. And then they showed the clip and it was uh, the zany Mrs. I forget what her name, zany Mrs. whatever. She was like eight months pregnant and she's with Cliff down in his office. And there's this cute, it was like this extra role that you remember that I remembered all these years later. And I write about this in the book cause I was horrified. I was just like, not her too, you know? And then Jennifer Thompson, one of the Jane Doe's, she told me which episode she was in. It was Theo's graduation. And you can see her in the background at like her locker walking in the high school. And then Stacy Pinkerton, who tells her story to me in the epilogue, she was an extra. So now it's to the point where, you know, I couldn't watch the show because I'd always be going, looking in the background at the extras going, was she a victim? Was she a victim? But I will say, I mean, if you look at the show as fiction, 
it's a great show. I will not take that away from it. But to me, it's just all intermingled with now all of the women I know that were extras that, you know, said they were victimized by him. So can you briefly tell us who Bruce Castor is and why he's important to this whole story? Um, Bruce, <laughs> Bruce Castor was the Montgomery County District Attorney in 2005, and he had just run for Attorney General the year before in the primary and lost um, because against Tom Corbett because um, he'd gotten $600,000 in contributions from Drew and Marilyn Lewis. Drew had, he used to be the Secretary of Transportation under Reagan. He was Castor's friend, and he'd had a DUI in Castor's office, anyway, and had been prosecuted by Castor's office and got to go to a rehab. So it became a very big contentious issue, but so he still had political aspirations. But he was a great prosecutor. I mean, I had seen him get convictions on murders where he didn't have the murder weapon. In one case, all he had was the imprint of a gun in a holster, and he got a conviction. But he, you know, did not want to touch this case from day one, which surprised me. I thought, you know, he'd be, it's high profile, he loved the cameras, you know, he, yeah, I thought he'd be all over it. And it was just the opposite. So, you know, to this day, I don't know why, but he, I found out a decade later, like the day he closed the investigation and issued his press release saying that, the detectives on the case were still, didn't know he was gonna do it. They still, they had that day come up with a list of questions and things they were gonna investigate. And then that night, and Castor wrote this press release himself and faxed it out. Um, they closed it and they didn't let Andrea's attorneys know. And they found out when the press showed up at their office door Andrea was out with her sister, and they couldn't get, get a hold of her to tell her. And when she did try to come home, the media was camped out on their doorstep. So, um, yeah, so he was the guy who decided, I'm not going to prosecute Bill Cosby back in 2005. Right. So one of the functions of the press is to be a check and balance for government and institutions. So you mentioned earlier the, the um, practice of trading up in the media. And I'm curious to know if you can comment about the ways that politics and the business side of the news uh, impact information that's provided to the public about sexual assault, like the, the issue itself, and, and how individual cases are either handled or mishandled. Like how, how, do, how does that, the backdrop of politics and business impact what the general public comes to understand about sexual assault cases? Well, I think the, the biggest card to play that, that powerful, wealthy millionaires like they Cosby have is their threats to sue a news, new org, news organization. You know, most news organizations are struggling financially, especially even today. Right. And so even if you're going to win a lawsuit, you're still going to spend a lot of money fighting it. And that's what Cosby always did very well, was he would threaten to sue. We got a lot of threatening, we got some threatening letters. I was getting calls from his attorney every day threatening to sue, and I, I detail, I, luckily I kept my notes from 2005, so I have a lot of those conversations I had notes of, and they're in my book. So that, but I think it works with a lot of news organizations because they really are scared that, that they're gonna be sued. Yeah. So that's the biggest thing. But what I found out when I, years later when it rebroke, um, his attorney was Marty Singer and he was known as like the pit bull lawyer to the stars. He's like Britney Spears, like any celebrity that gets in trouble, they, they, have, they hire Marty Singer. Well, he did this interview with the New York Times where he said his strategy is not to sue news organizations. His strategy is to intimidate them into not running the stories in the first place. And he's very successful, so he doesn't have to sue them. Because he said defamation lawsuits are hard to win and you don't get that much money. So his whole strategy is to prevent them from ever being written. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts about what journalists could be doing differently to help the public understand the issue of sexual assault in a more contextual way versus a blow-by-blow -blow of an individual case? Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a hard one. Um, you know, I think the, the bigger issue that's come out of this is when this broke, people didn't want to believe it because Bill Cosby had never been accused of anything like this before. And I said, you know, I wrote an op-ed for the Inquirer about this last year. Like, don't discount someone's story just because they're accusing someone who's never been publicly accused before. I mean, Jerry Sandusky hadn't been publicly accused before. So many of these predators were doing this for years before they were caught. There was a state trooper outside of Philly that was praying, Michael Evans, that was, had, there were like 30 victims that came forward by the time one of the lawsuits came to be. So, um, and investigate it. Um, 
And if, if a victim has gone to police, I mean, that tells you that they are willing to stand up in a court of law and tell their story. It gives them a level of credibility. And the women that I spoke with back then had done that. And they also were willing to stand up in a court of law for Andrea and tell their stories. I mean, that, that adds a whole level of credibility because it is not an easy thing to come out against a powerful person, man or woman. It just isn't. So, so I only have like two or three questions left, but given that, that's sort of a nice launching point to talk about the fact that, you know, for years before the Me Too movement became like a formal national tagline that we recognize, these women came forward and said, Me Too, mm -hmm. about Bill Cosby. And I'm, I'm curious to know, because you've been in touch with so many of them, I, I, I think on one hand, I've seen headlines and articles saying things like, the Me Too movement didn't include them and that it, it has it felt um, to be an exclusion. Yet on the flip side, um, I think you could also look at it in a way that their coming forward in mass when they did was almost the last step on the ladder before the tipping point for Me Too to become like, like a, a household kind of word that where we, we recognize these things. So I'm curious to know if um, the women that you've been in touch with are um, feeling left out or feeling like they were part of making this tipping point in America happen. Well, but they came forward three years before the movement happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, 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 do, I do get a sense they feel left out and they feel overlooked and, you know, and I've wondered why didn't, you know, Alyssa Milano's tweet, as we all know now, is what started the Me Too movement after the New York Times and Ronan Farrow did stories on Harvey Weinstein. Um, and all those women, remember, were celebrities. They were household names. Right. And the New York Times had, all these women had signed, um, like, agreements with uh, Weinstein. They got money paid for their accusations, and they signed NDAs. So um, they, you know, for whatever reason, those were the stories that were told in the New York Times, and I think that gave it a credibility. Um, I think the fact that they were celebrities, um, I think the fact that it maybe wasn't a name, I've never heard of Harvey Weinstein before that case, that case broke. Um, but, you know, what if, I don't know. I mean, and I think that also the fact that not long after all these women started coming forward with Cosby, Gloria Allred held, held that press conference and said, asked Cosby to pay $100 million, to set up a $100 million victim fund for the women. And the women, by the way, who were at that press conference with her had no idea she was going to do that. So I think that set a bad tone for it, that, you know, Marty Singer was already saying these women just wanted money, and then, boom, she just hands it to him on a silver platter and says, give me money. So um, and even though in Harvey Weinstein's case, all those women had gotten settlements from him for their allegations and got money, it didn't seem to stick to them right. the way it did. In the same way. And you know, it made me crazy too, because they, Cosby's people will say, oh, these women just want to be famous. I'm thinking, who wants to be famous for being raped? Right. You know, who wants that as their, you know, that's going to go on their gravestone someday? No, I mean, they used what they got as a platform. They got statute of limitations laws changed in three states. But not Pennsylvania. Yeah, well. Pennsylvania's we always I was amazed <laughs> to find out that Pencil when I was doing this, you know, Joe McGettigan had told me after Sandusky they allowed Pennsylvania didn't allow sexual assault experts to testify in sexual assault cases until 2012 because of the Sandusky case. Mm -hmm. It was the 50th state in the country to allow that. And I think in the Cosby case, it made a big difference yes. with the second trial because they had that person testify first. Yes. And actually, I just saw the prosecution in Harvey Weinstein's case called on her to I just saw be their too. expert. Yeah. Yes, Dr. Ziff. You have to. I mean, you know, the behavior is not something you or I can understand if we haven't been through it. So you need an expert to explain. This may sound a little strange to you, but, you know, this is the norm with these yeah. cases. Yeah. Is there anything that you learned during your reporting or writing this book that surprised you? No, just the little things like seeing which role that Lily Bernard played and, you know, the extent to which, you know, the, the five or 16 models a week that were sent to his dressing room. Um, there was a modeling agency in Denver and one in New York that a lot of these victims came from. And they're, they're, they would come to their models and say, Bill Cosby wants to mentor you to a one, and then it would be this pattern. Um, it's also the amount of enablers that allowed, like there was very common knowledge in Hollywood that he was doing this. Quincy Jones even sent a text to one of the accusers after she came forward in late 2014 saying, I've been telling Bill for years to stop drugging women. 
And I'm like, well, at least he tried to stop him, you know. But law enforcement was enablers. The media was enabling him. Um, many in the media did mea culpas in 2014 for not asking him the tough questions, including Ronan Farrow, who then went on, of course, to go after um, Harvey Weinstein. But he said when he was with NBC, he was told not to ask Bill Cosby about the sexual assaults. And he said, I should have, I should have done it anyway. But I, I didn't. I waited till like the last question. So he wrote an, an apology thing about not asking him about it. I'm going to ask Nikki one last question. Um, I forgot to say earlier that the index cards were on your chairs in case you had questions. And if you do, you're welcome to pass them down to the end. And um, if we do have questions from the audience, we'll, we'll stop in a minute to take them. I'm just curious, Nikki, do you think that writing this book or following this case has changed you? Well, no, I, it, I, I learned a lot. You know, I, some of the rape myths I didn't realize were rape myths, but listening to Dr. Ziv's testimony about mm -hmm. it, um, you know, I really learned a lot. And it's, I learned a lot about um, drug-facilitated sexual assaults. And the one point I try to make in the book very subtly is how dangerous it is to drug someone without their knowledge or consent. Right. I mean, someone could have died easily. You know, you don't know if they're allergic to the drug. You don't know what else they have in their system. Um, you, and some of these women, after they were drugged, drove and they're not sure how they didn't get in car accidents right. on the way home. So um, that's, that's really a lot of what I learned. Yeah, great. So I'm looking at, do we have questions that came in from anybody? <laughs> yep. Yeah. We'll, we'll just take one here, yeah, and we'll take the other, yeah. <laughs> I think my bosses would tell you that too. <laughs> so just for the audience who couldn't hear that, um, one of Nikki's former colleagues is noting that Nikki is very unimpressed by authority, <laughs> therefore making her a great reporter. Uh, for this particular case, and and then you finish by asking her why why is that? Um, yeah. Well, I always say when I start, I started out as a political reporter, and I always said like our job as a reporter is to question people in authority. Like we're not supposed to just say, just take for granted what someone tells us is the truth. Like especially a public official or a, a politician or or anything. And I always said I don't understand why like bosses can't understand that in journalism, that we're just not going to blindly do something that we think is wrong. Um, it, it's really, I'm driven by a sense of right and wrong. And I was raised in a family where my father was really instilled, like the whole concept of honor. And I, I write about this in acknowledgments, about honor, about being true to yourself, about standing up for what's right. And that's really what it is. It's like, I, throughout my career, when I've gotten in, you know, into it with my bosses, it's been over the integrity of the story, or I promised this person, they agreed to talk to me because they trusted me, and now you're asking me to violate that trust because, but for what you want to do. And that's, that's, what, that's why I question authority, because I'm not going to do something that I know is wrong or unethical or immoral um, just to please a boss or to please someone else. And um, you know, we're supposed to, I, I sound so sanctimonious when I say this, but journalism is supposed to be about, you know, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. You know, we're not supposed to be the lackeys of the powerful and the privileged. We're supposed to be standing up for the little guy who no one stands up for. And that's what I've always been drawn to. And, you know, when someone comes to you and they're willing, especially with a sexual assault victim, like with Tamara Green, she put her name and photo with it. Because she, she said, you know, no one's going to believe me if I'm anonymous. So if you're willing to put your name and photo with it and go to authorities and say this is what happened to you and stand up in a court of law, you know, I'm going to hear you out. But a lot of reporters would have dismissed her because they just didn't want to believe it. Because they just refused to believe that Bill Cosby would do something like that because he'd never been accused of it before. Mm -hmm. First time for everything. We have another question asking how Andrea is doing now and what she is doing now. I think she's doing pretty well now. She's still, she's back in Canada. She's a masseuse still and helping cancer victims and people with Parkinson's. And um, I think that 
she, you know, this has really been a tough road for her. Her victim impact statement was heartbreaking. If you go online, you can find it, and I excerpted it a little bit in the book. Um, you know, but she's a strong person, and she just really felt like she needed to see the criminal justice aspect of this brought forth because, you know, she was the whole reason she came forward in 2005 was she was having nightmares for an entire year. She was waking up sobbing, and she was dreaming that, you know, a woman was being sexually assaulted in front of her, and she wasn't doing anything. And she really worried it would happen to someone else. And it was funny, because at the second trial, reporters, were, there was a woman who testified who tried to say that Andrea set up Cosby for money. She kind of emerged from nowhere a couple years ago. And, and I was saying, well, wait a second. If she did this for money, she got her money in 2006. So why is she here? Why is she putting herself through not one trial, but two trials, if her motive is money? Because it's so much fun being called a con artist in headlines all over the world. I mean, she still gets a lot of grief from, from a lot of people. But she really just felt that, and I think she also felt that she was the only one of the 64 where the statute of limitations hadn't expired, and that this was the only way he was ever going to face justice. And at the second trial, what they did much better is they, the DA asked her, he's like, why are you here? And she said, I'm here for justice. And it, yeah. it was very powerful. <laughs> so as a follow-up to that, um, if you followed the, the trials, at the first trial, there was one other woman who testified um, who was pretty shaky on the stand. And in, I didn't think she was. I th she was tearful at, at places. Oh, she but, was. Yeah, and, and then yeah she was traumatized, yeah. yeah. And then at the second trial, they had five other victims who were allowed to, to testify who had, had varying um, presentations. And uh, one in particular who seems like it's a very, very difficult thing for her to think about, but she is very dedicated because she's done press conferences and uh, testified there. But it was sort of like, um, regardless of whether people testified or not, the courtroom had numerous other survivors in that sort of banded together to support one another and felt like Andrea going on the stand and taking this case on was on their behalf as well. Do you have a sense of how everybody else is doing or the, the, the people who were, were present there, if this has brought closure or, because I think I get asked a lot about, um, I think there's an assumption that guilt, getting a guilty verdict fixes things for people and it might fix no. some parts for people but it often getting that validation that it was as real and as bad that it's deserving as a conviction often opens up other stuff for people so i'm just curious if you have a sense of how folks are doing and if that um, sort of sisterhood that emerged continues today yes i mean a lot of them are close I'm, and you asked what i learned and that did remind me of something i i didn't realize how a sexual assault can scar someone's psyche for life. Yeah. I mean, some of these women, um, you know, talk, and I write about this in the book a little bit, even talking about it again triggers them and it brings up, they've fought, like many sexual assault survivors, they've had cutting behavior, they've had suicide attempts, they've had drug addiction, they've had alcohol addiction, and talking about it again and reliving it again brings it all up. I mean, one woman, you know, first was t crying the entire time she was yeah. talking to me, but she wanted me to tell her story in the book. And she's the one, PJ Mastin, who was a bunny mother um, for the bunnies, and Cosby was best friends with Hugh Hefner. And in fact, he stayed at the Playboy Mansions when he would be in LA or Chicago. And he, she had been friends with him for years when he invited her up, they were going to dinner, and he said, do you want a drink? She said, Grand Marnier, and he sent a bellhop to get it. She said, it should have been my first sign, because why didn't he just call room service, right? The guy comes back, she takes two sips of the drink and she's out. And she wakes up eight hours later in bed with him naked. And I won't get graphic, but there was a lot more. And I'm a little more graphic in the book because I think people need to know what she went through. She goes home, she showers, and she goes to tell the bunny, her boss, what happened. And they said, well, you know, you can't say anything. Him and Hef are best friends. And then Cosby sends her a ficus tree with this bizarre note. That's, and she sent me it that said something like, take care of yourself. And he kept calling her, and she, her private line, and then he wanted her to connect him with other bunnies, and she's like, no, she wouldn't do it. She just flat out refused. She wasn't going to put any other women in his hands. So, um, but it was the trauma that they still live with. Like, you can't undo a lot of this damage. And even a lot of the damage that's been done 
to the reputations of people like Andrea and her parents by the Cosby, and they continue to be done because Cosby still controls the microphone. Um, anytime his spokesperson issues a statement, it's in headlines everywhere. Um, Cosby said the judge, judge is racist. Cosby says these women who sued him for defamation are liars and he's gonna keep fighting. You know, it's just he still keeps going on and on and on. So, you know, it's hard to undo the damage that's done to people's reputations by that. Do we have any other questions? They've denied it. All I can say is, she asked about the modeling agencies, whether they were complicit in any evidence. Um, the woman who owned the agency in Denver denies it. The woman who owned the agency in New York denies it. She's now deceased. Um, I have to think some of those models came back to them and told them what happened to them. And I know in the case of the Denver one, there were a couple of incidents where, so they, but they denied it. But there was a lot of cash going back and forth, I think. Uh, another similar line, um, when we talk about sexual assault, we talk about, you know, it's, it's easy to focus on the perpetrator and the victim, but these things don't happen in a vacuum. They're happening, happening in our communities, they're happening within social circles. There's a contextual piece around that. Um, and I know from some of the reports I read, I remember uh, reading about one of his drivers coming forward years later and saying, you know, I left my job because I didn't like what I was seeing. Did, did you capture any of that or talk to other people who maybe weren't willing to label it as criminal but did not like the things that they were seeing? Did you, did you find many people that were willing no, to acknowledge that? No, and I, I had two months to write this book. <laughs> Let me tell you, if I'd had two years, you know, I would have done yeah. a lot more investigating. But um, no, but they all signed NDAs. I mean, if you work for him, you sign that. But Barbara Bowman wrote this essay after she came forward in, in the Washington Post in 2014 where she talks about that, that all the people that had to know he was doing this, and it goes to the enablers, like the, the, the people that picked her up at the airport. The, the, I mean, there were, just, there were people everywhere. The masseuse I talked to, you know, Becky Cooper, who was given a drink in a restaurant by someone, she didn't know if he worked there, and she took two sips again, and she's out. Like, there, there were so many people around him. With PJ Maston, there were three other guys and some two whose names you would recognize that were in that hotel room when she went up there when Cosby gave her that drink. Um, so yeah, there were. And all I have to do is, of course, you know, Quincy Jones's comment. So it, and, and D.L. Hughley, another comic, has said it was very well known in Hollywood, you know, that he'd been doing this. And I interviewed other people about that. Um, yeah, I vaguely remember that. The the sh yeah, there was just, I there was so much information to try to get to, I just oh, yeah. couldn't. Yeah. Well, we are at eight o'clock, so I want to thank you, Nikki. Uh, number one, not just for coming here tonight, but this, this really is a, a very well done book. I was fortunate enough to get an advance um, audio copy, actually, to, to make sure that I had gone through it all. But you've been a joy to work with over the years, asking yeah. really good questions and, and digging deep. So thank you for all of that. I, I think that. Um, what you've put together here and the way it is presented, really, um, the, the themes and the patterns and um, e even themes and patterns about what people refuse to look at and the turning away and, and what the denial, um, it becomes glaring when you go through it. So thank you for writing it. And I, I do encourage people to pick up a copy if you haven't, but de definitely uh, give it a read because it, it is a compelling, a compelling story. So thank you very much for talking with us tonight. And then you're signing. We have you're signing yeah. books afterwards, correct? Where's, yes. I don't know who's talking, but up there. Okay. So we've got, uh, where's the book signing going to be situated? Up here at the table? Great. Thank you. So. Thank you. <laughs>